Welcome to the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald, and our topic today is water, particularly the relationship between watershed protection and investment and the quality of the water that we all drink. We will be discussing two closely related bodies of WRI work, a new study of watershed protection and investment in the United States that is already improving how U.S. tax dollars for watershed protection are spent, and a new watershed tool, Global Forest Watch Water, that provides data on some 230 watersheds worldwide. My guests today are Todd Gardner, he's a senior associate in the water team here at the World Resources Institute, and Jasmine Ching, a research analyst who's the driving force behind Global Forest Watch Water. Both of you, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Um, Todd, I want to start with you. Um, I've enjoyed reading the paper. Um, I was particularly struck because when I think back to my childhood, every time I went to a nature center, there was a diorama that showed the connection between upstream watershed protection and clean water down below. This must have been done in every single science fair that everybody has gone to. Why do we need a paper to tell us to protect watersheds? Sure, no, thanks Lawrence, and it, it's a great question. And, and for generations, we've understood the connection between forests and water, uh, sometimes to uh, the detriment of the healthy ecosystem. Uh, we maybe have even taken it for granted over the years. Uh, and now when we look across the country and see a lot of the water quality issues, we're really understanding that many of those issues can be linked back to issues in the forests and broader landscape. More suburban areas, fire, insects, and disease. So really what this paper tries to do is make that connection really clear, help understand the steps that communities and stakeholders can take um, to do a better job to restore and protect the sources of their clean water. You said that uh, you and your co-authors found only a few dozen examples of successful watershed protection. Um, perhaps I'm an, Ameri an arrogant American, but I presume if we're not doing it very well here, it's probably not being done very well elsewhere. Were you surprised that you didn't find more examples of successful watershed protection? Well, there are you know, quite a few examples of successful protection and restoration um, cases across the U.S. We really dialed in on a dozen or so examples which have had a lot of forward momentum over the last decade. Um, and that can really provide some insight into what it takes to make this a reality in other places. Um, you see some incredible innovation in New England, in the, the Mountain West, in the Southwest of the U.S. And there's a ton that we can learn and try to replicate to take this at scale. Um, you identify three stages. Again, these seem to me to be fairly straightforward, but I guess if they were really straightforward, people would have done it already. Building momentum around uh, watershed protection, designing a program, and then implementing the action plan. I want to come back to those um, in a moment, but uh, first I want to ask you to tell me, I see in the introduction to the paper that the EPA has already taken up some of these recommendations. It's really exciting that EPA, along with the U.S. endowment and forestry and communities, looked at many of the recommendations that we put forward and were able to adopt those recommendations into a recent request for proposal for healthy watersheds programming. So what they're trying to do, really for the first time, is look at the lessons learned over the last 10 years 
and understand how they can build that into the funding programs moving forward. So a lot of credit to the federal government to really understanding how they can build upon previous successes. And you say, and maybe here, you know, we're, we're, WRI is all about count it, change it, scale it. We want to take it to scale. And you say perhaps the EPA's uh, requirements that this be included in requests for proposals will uh, gradually be picked up in the rest of the world and leverage some, was it $30 billion in watershed investment? That's what we're hoping. Right now, there is a ton of money on the sidelines to be invested in watershed conservation and restoration. What we're lacking is what we call investment-ready projects. Projects that are both of the scale from a monetary standpoint that are going to really attract private investment uh, and that have really considered all of the elements of success. Um, and so what this report tries to do, our partnerships with the Environmental Protection Agency and others, is really lay that out. What does it mean to be a successful project? How do you make your project attractive to financiers to really achieve the level of outcomes in terms of watershed protection and restoration that is necessary for clean water and healthy communities? And this brings us directly, Jasmine, to your work. And this marvelous tool, I used it this morning. I clicked on the Chesapeake watershed and I could see how it was doing. And there covers some 230 watersheds around the world. In the blog post that you wrote, about this tool, you also used it to analyze some of the trends in watershed protection, or maybe I would say watershed deterioration. What did you find? So we measured four of the most critical watershed-related risk. We looked at recent forest loss, historical forest loss, erosion, and fire. And among them, one of the most shocking findings we've, we had was, for example, in Sumatra, there was up to 22% of forest loss, where there's plenty of scientific evidence that when forest loss happen, their ability to regulate water quality and water quantity diminish. So in areas of Sumatra, we have witnessed growing risk in water pollution, landslides, and floods as a result of the deterioration of forest. It seems to me that one of the big problems in watershed protection is incompatible incentives. If I have control either legally or illegally over the upshed areas and I can make money by cutting the timber, uh, I can take a big benefit. The cost of that is borne by the people downstream who are going to have a lot more sedimentation, maybe their water plants are going to fail, they'll be subject to more flooding. Um, how can Global Forest Watch Water help with that kind of problem of the mismatch of incentives? So in many ways, WRI brings this very exciting global data for people to visualize what's really happening in our world, while previously people didn't have access to see the extent and level of severity that the world's ecosystems and forests and watersheds are facing. This in many ways ties back to Todd's work about our lack of awareness of the linkage between forests and water around the world. And we hope this tool can in many ways bring that to people's mind. And our very simple way of um, quantifying the level of risk each watershed is facing 
will hopefully strike um, strike a chord with people who are the stewards of watersheds, people who depend on the watershed, and people who govern these watersheds. One of the examples you mentioned in the blog post is the Philippines, and I have a soft spot in my heart for the Philippines. I lived there for two years as a reporter, and there were these terrible imbalances in power, where the rich and powerful um, controlled a lot, and poor people had relatively little voice, despite the fact that it's formerly a democracy. Um, was there anything in your looking at the Philippine watersheds that could help people to redress that imbalance in power? So in the Philippines, it was found out that it has one of the highest erosion risk among all the watersheds in the world because it is it's situated in the tropics. It has very high intensive rainfall throughout the year and it has very erodible soil. And also as a result of the the mountainous uh, topography as well as the the land use types, for example, agriculture all through the country. And we hope that people can use this information when they plan where they're going to put their houses, where they are um, expanding their cities, and where they're going to pay more attention to um, locations for restoration and other conservation activities to help uh, mitigate these risks. And just building on Jasmine's point, which is a great one, um, the tool does a great job of clearly showing where there is the greatest risk, what the trends are in terms of watershed degradation, but as importantly, it tries to pinpoint where the opportunities might be as well for proactive conservation and restoration. And so when you think about poverty alleviation, when you're trying to think about the balancing of power, we're really trying to look at opportunities where we can have uh, job growth in rural areas and focus on livelihoods, where we can provide economic opportunities in the city centers, which is highly dependent upon clean and timely water. So when we pinpoint risks in particular watersheds in which municipalities are facing some of the greatest dangers, we try to couple that with cost-effective solutions uh, that will enhance sustainable development and healthy livelihoods. Have we seen, this question's really for both of you, because I'm kind of putting you on the spot. These tools are new. Todd's paper is not yet out, so maybe we haven't seen yet. But do we have any examples of where somebody has used this data to initiate a process to protect a watershed? So we're, we're still, you know, we just launched the tool just over a month ago. Um, and a lot of the engagement we've had to date, um, we're not quite ready to publicly talk about the results, but entities within the U.S. federal government, um, some within the, the corporate sector as well, are beginning to use the tool to look across their portfolio where they have manufacturing plants, where they have uh, major facilities, which ones are of the greatest risk related to forest loss and other kind of pollution drivers that are going to limit the revenue potential, which is going to potentially um, you know, drive new regulations, which are going to impact their ability to operate. And how can they be strategic and begin to prioritize where they can invest their limited resources to be part of the solution. You know, one of the things that's really exciting about Global Forest Watch Water, about the source water protection paper, is driving towards what we call collective action. You know, right now, the solution sets have been very siloed. The utility sector does their part, the land manager 
and, and landowners do their thing. Uh, the Coca-Colas and Nestle's try to invest in their own way. What we really try to do is point out where the opportunities are and how folks can work together with the right tools and frameworks to leverage those dollars, have them go a lot further, and actually have the benefit that is going to accomplish why they're making these investments in the first place. And also I would say that GFW Water is not completely new because we're leveraging some of our WRI's flagship um, platforms and data sets. We uh, use data from Global Forest Watch, the near real-time forest change and forest cover data, as well as our Global Water Risk Assessment Tool Aqueduct. So we have um, a lot to bring to the table with our proven experience and success already. And also our engagement with um, our users started way before the tool was already launched uh, about a month ago. So we have, our, we are working with five civil society groups across India and Indonesia to see how our tool can help their ongoing projects in terms of um, forest protection and watershed management to better their work and also provide feedback for us to better the tool. That's fascinating and I think it's one of the real strengths of the Global Forest Watch program is they have not taken a build it and they will come approach. Of course, you know, if you build it and they come, that's great. We hope that'll happen. But they've also, as you point out, Jasmine, had a history of reaching out to civil society groups or sometimes civil society come to them and say, you know, how can you help us use this tool? So you're, you're building on that foundation of user engagement with GFW Water. And I guess I'm also understanding from what you said, part of the genius of your work is this mashup to say, we've got all this water data, we've got all, all this forest data, how about if we mash them up together, can we learn something new? Exactly. And it's not just data. Uh, there's lots of data out there. The key is putting the data in the hands of decision maker, makers in a really accessible way. And so Global Forest Watch Water lets you drop a pin anywhere in the world and within five seconds, you know how big your watershed is, you know where the dams are, where the treatment facilities are located, what the land cover is. As Jasmine stated, you know exactly what the risks are, if they're getting worse, where it's happening, and then depending on which risks are, are most severe in your watershed, what are the solution sets that you and your partners can take? And how do you build upon successful examples in other parts of the world? all within less than a minute. You can download that, you can track changes over time, and you can really build uh, you know, a broader group of partners towards a common goal. That's such a good advertisement for Global Force Watch Water. I'm really tempted to end right now, but we've got about two more minutes, and I have a somewhat technical question. Therefore, I'm gonna to go to Yasmin, who understands the tech technical piece of this, and then I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna ask each of you for a parting thought. But first, this technical question. 230 watersheds doesn't seem like enough. If I'm dealing with the catchment area for my own city, so I looked at the, you know, one of the watersheds was the Chesapeake, it's really big. Another was the Mississippi. Now, those are, I guess, technically watersheds in that they all drain to a single body of water, but oftentimes people are gonna be concerned with sort of more local impacts, perhaps within 50 or 100 or maybe 200 miles. Does the tool permit them to um, get information for those smaller bodies uh, than the 230 watersheds that you have um, covered? That's exactly what Todd mentioned in the beginning, that we 
allow users to drop a pin anywhere in the world and we'll create a sub-watershed as a result of topographic and hydrological models and they can look at a smaller watershed that's of their interest. And we can, if people don't know where to drop the pin, we have identified locations of important water infrastructure such as dams as well as urban water intake points where people can put their pin there as to see how the upstream watershed would in, have an impact on these critical locations. That is incredibly cool. Um, I was just poking at it today, but I want to go back now and drop a uh, pin anywhere at, in the world at the intake point where my water comes from. I think that is sucked out of the Potomac River um, and then see what I can learn from that. That's terrific. Todd, parting thought, and Jasmine, I'm going to give you the last word. Sure. Uh, well, one, thank you so much for hosting us. This is a, an incredible opportunity to talk about our work. Um, we're at a critical time. You have urbanization, climate change, and impacts across the landscape. And with Global Forest Watch Water and with our Source Water Protection Report, we're really driving towards how do we create cost-effective solutions and how do we do it together? So we're ultimately really trying to break down those silos, figure out how the public and private sector can work more closely together, how the forestry and water world can figure out ways that they can leverage uh, each other's resources and efforts. Uh, and, and it's an exciting time. Um, I mean, we talk and we hear a lot of news about all of the really nasty things that are going on. Um, but what we're starting to see is there's a lot of, 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 of you know, bright lights and success stories as well. We need to continue to build on that uh, and make new mistakes and not continue to make the old ones again. Lovely. Jasmine, last word to you. So GFW Water is a really, really exciting effort that we've put together over the past couple of years. And we hope that people will go on the site and be inspired with all the data and visualization and the guidance and tools that we have put together. Jasmine, you said inspired, and I think the other thing that comes out of this to me is empowered. Mm -hmm. And I liked Todd's word about collective action. You know, there's a lot of disparate interests involved in any watershed. And I think that what you have done in creating Global Forest Watch Water, what Todd has done in this with his co-authors in the study of successful watershed investment protection in the United States, gives us the beginning of a framework for protecting these watersheds. My parting thought would be, you know, we've had this entire conversation without mentioning climate change, but this is directly related to climate change because climate change is um, accelerating forest destruction, it's making fires worse, um, it's having all kinds of impacts, and so it's kind of a race. Mm -hmm. It's a race between the forces that we've unleashed in the change in climate and then our incredibly rapidly exploding ability to gather and analyze information to cope with these changes that are underway. And I'm, I feel just really privileged to sit with Jasmine and Todd, people who are at the forefront of providing these tools to help us cope with the changes that are in our environment. So thank you both. Thank you very much. Me today. And make sure you check out the website, Global Forest Watch Water. Thanks so much. I will indeed. This has been the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald. My guests today, Jasmine Ching, who's been the driving force behind Global Forest Watch Water, and Todd Gardner, who is one of several authors in a new report on successes in watershed management in the United States. Thank you both for joining me. Uh, to our listeners, thank you for listening. We hope you'll tune in next time for the next WRI podcast. <laughs>